So, you know, if, uh, uh, if you've attended any of the Sunday school classes that we have here, you know by now uh, that I'm a devoted history buff and that I like to look at how secular history lines up with our biblical history and uh, with the history of the Christian faith. So because of that, I read a lot of biographies, uh, many of which record for us the last words of great men and women down through the centuries, uh, and some of, some of which can be quite profound, like the last words of John Newton, the uh, former slave trader turned Presbyterian minister and the author of Amazing Grace, who as he, he lay dying, uh, when someone that was there near the bedside asked him, they said, Bro- uh, Brother John, are you still with us? To which Newton replied, yes, I'm still here in the land of the dying, but soon I'll be going on to the land of the living. Another uh, profound example are the last words of Scotland's Robert the Bruce, who said to his family, Now God be with you, my dear children. I have breakfast with you, but I shall sup with my Lord Jesus Christ. Now some historic figures have made really heroic statements at the end of their lives, like Joan of Arc, uh, who said, Hold the cross high so that I might see it through the flames. Uh, Now other people's last words, honestly, are not quite that profound. Uh, Just before he died, uh, Pancho Villa, the Mexican revolutionary general, said to a friend, Don't let me end this way. Please tell my followers I said something. I said something. But, you know, either way, it can be interesting to hear the final testimony of godly men and women speak toward the end of their lives. And the Bible contains a lot of these examples. Like in Luke chapter 2, the old prophet Simeon in the temple, he, he gets to see with his own eyes his own feeble eyes, God's promised Messiah, his Savior. And he sees the baby Jesus and he lifts him up and he speaks his his testimony right before he dies. He said, now I'm ready to depart in peace. In 2 Timothy, the Apostle Paul, who's within weeks, maybe days of his death when he writes this letter, uh, writes down his final thoughts to us in that book. Uh, In Ecclesiastes chapter 12, we have the words of Solomon. Reflecting on his life, who says to us, Now all has been heard, and here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man, for God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether good or evil. And this morning we're going to be looking at uh, some parting words of his father, King David of Israel, from Psalm chapter 18. And for those of you joining us, uh, we're going through the Psalms expositorily, so we've been... Uh, spending 18 weeks going through the Psalms, and we're up to this one. Uh, But at this point that David writes this, uh, he's an old man now. And we know that because this Psalm is virtually identical to the one recorded for us near the end of 2 Samuel. And and he's now reflecting back on his life, which may be one of the reasons why this is such a long Psalm, if you've had a chance to look at it. Uh, There are actually only three longer in the whole collection. Uh, Only Psalm 78, 89, and 119. And I promise not to read the whole thing to you, because dinner would be ruined. But I won't read all of it to you, but we are going to look at uh, Psalm 18, verses 28 to 50. So if you have your Bibles, I encourage you to look along. And the psalmist writes, beginning in verse 28, For it is you who light my lamp. The Lord my God lightens my darkness. For by you I can run against a troop, and by my God I can leap over a wall. This God... His way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in Him. For who is God but the Lord? 
Who is a rock except our God? The God who equips me with strength and made my way blameless. He made my feet like the feet of a deer and set me secure on the heights. You've given me the shield of your salvation and your right hand supported me and your gentleness made me great. You gave a wide path for my steps under me and my feet did not slip. The Lord lives and blessed be my rock and exalted be the God of my salvation who rescued me from my enemies. Yes, you exalted me above those who rose against me. You delivered me from the man of violence. For this I will praise you, O Lord, among the nations and sing to your name. Great salvation he brings to his king and shows steadfast love to his anointed, to David and to his offspring forever. So now, as I said, we've just uh, spent the last 18 weeks looking at the Psalms of King David and, and by extension at his life. And, you know, we've seen him start out as a young shepherd boy who's called out from among his brothers to be the future king of Israel. We've seen him trust God in impossible situations and improbable odds when he took on Goliath with a slingshot and just a couple rocks. But we've also seen him confess to some faults and failures along the way. And this particular psalm now just chronologically jumps to the end of David's life. And, uh, and as we've seen, it wasn't always an easy life, was it? He spent the first part of it running from King Saul. He spent the middle part of his life at war with his neighbors, the Philistines. And he spent the end of his life, sadly, dealing with his own sons who were warring against each other and against him uh, to try to determine who was going to be the next king. And I think it's important to remember that when we look at stories from the Bible and when we look at David's last words, because it's important to avoid imagining that his life was perfect. It's important to avoid imagining that everything went perfectly for him because on the contrary, his life was quite difficult and he knew that he couldn't handle everything that was coming against him and happening to him all on his own. So right from the beginning, David puts the glory where it belongs and gives it into God's hands and not his own. That's why he wrote, For who is God but the Lord? And who is a rock except our God? The God who equipped me with strength and made my way blameless. And, you know, I, I think this is a, a great day for this text to fall on, and it's a perfect accompaniment for our celebration of Reformation Sunday because David's words here really describe not only himself but call to mind the work and the mission of Martin Luther as both David uh, and Luther continually pointed beyond themselves and beyond their own accomplishments, as important as those were, to the object of their greatest confidence, which is the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And their, their lives and their legacies in doing that are still impacting us 21 centuries uh, later here in America and around the world. And I want us to really just look at that a little bit and talk about that through the lens of Psalm 18. And, you know, I think the first thing it shows us is that if you want to change the world, if you want to turn the world upside down for Jesus, uh, if his truth is to have the last word, we need to have a bold proclamation. David wrote, you gave a wide place for my steps under me and my feet did not slip. You see, that was David's great confidence. That was God's word and it belonged to Martin Luther as well. Because, you know, as you saw briefly in that video, uh, 501 years ago this week, in 1517, a Catholic priest and theologian by the name of Martin Luther challenged the leadership of the church on a number of issues that he felt had drifted into error. 
uh, places where he felt like their feet had slipped. And he brought up errors as to the authority of Scripture and the nature of salvation and the work of Christ. And he did it in order to call the church back to its first love, back to its humble beginnings. And to do that, Luther published his 95 Thesis of Disputed Doctrines, and he nailed it to the castle church door in Wittenberg, Germany. And with that hammer blow, he threw open the floodgates of the Reformation. Uh, Now, to be fair to history, uh, he didn't get up that morning and go, uh, by golly, today is the day I'm going to reshape the face of Christendom. Right? Never would have crossed his mind. In fact, uh, the apologist and author Karl Barth jokes that uh, Luther was like a blind man in the bell tower of medieval Europe who stumbled and reaching out to the wall for support, grabbed the bell rope instead. But in the process, disturbing and alerting the religious establishment that human tradition had displaced the church's doctrine. And isn't that what we see around the world today? But you know, when Luther nailed up his list of disputed doctrines, uh, he intended it as a call for just an academic discussion. Uh, it wasn't an act of vandalism. It wasn't a call for revolution. Uh, the Castle Church door there was a bulletin board for the university where uh, professors listed their courses and where religious debates were proposed. Uh, Luther intentionally penned his frustrations in Latin so only scholars would have seen his provocative content. But in God's providence, it was quickly snapped up by university students. And it was translated into German. And it was printed in mass and distributed all over Germany. Now, eventually, a copy of it made its way to Rome. And efforts began to convince Luther to change his tune. But like we should be, he was convinced of his message. And even more, he was convinced of the supremacy of Scripture over the doctrines of the church and over the authority of the papacy. And so he refused to keep silent. And because of that, in 15... 21, Pope Leo X formally excommunicated Luther from the Catholic Church. But you know, just like in the words of the psalm we read today, just like in Psalm 18, God rescued Luther from his enemies. He exalted him above those who rose against him, and he delivered him from the man of violence for a while. Because like David, that wasn't the end of his struggles. That very same year, under continued pressure from the papacy, Luther uh, again refused to recant. And this time, he was called before the Holy Roman Emperor Charles V, who summoned Luther to an assembly of the clergy and nobility called the Deed of Worms, where he knew his life was going to be in danger if he didn't recant. So uh, when he arrived, Luther was brought into this great assembly chamber uh, where his writings were laid out in front of him on a table, and he was asked just two questions. He was asked, are these your writings, and will you recant? And he hesitated for a minute, apparently intimidated by the august crowd and this huge crowd of dignitaries and the presence of the emperor and the papal legates. Uh, and in a barely audible voice, he said, yes, yes. And then he asked for time to consider the second question, the question of recanting, because he said that matter involved the salvation of his soul and the truth of the word of God. Now, incredibly, the emperor gave him a stay of 24 hours, which was probably the longest 24 hours in Luther's life. But the next morning, you know, he gathered himself. He returned to the assembly as composed and as brave as he had been intimidated and overwhelmed the day before. And he was asked the same two questions. Would he defend his writings or would he recant? 
But this time he was warned that his time was up and he was commanded to answer plainly. And, and Luther amazingly and in an act of great boldness and candor uh, addressed the emperor directly and he said, Since your serene majesty and your lordship seek a simple answer, I will give it to you in this manner, plain and unvarnished. Unless I am convinced by the testimony of scripture and by clear arguments, since I neither accept the authority of the pope or councils because they have erred and contradicted themselves, I am conquered by the holy scriptures and my conscience is bound to the word of God. I cannot and I will not recant since it's unsafe and dangerous to do anything against conscience. And with all of these stunned faces looking at him, he said, here I stand. I cannot do otherwise. God help me. Amen. What a powerful message. What a powerful testimony. And most importantly, what a powerful faith lived out before the assembled powers of the known world at the time and with that power, he could say in the words of David today, For I will praise you, O Lord, among the nations and sing of your name. And it's that same power that's here for us today. And we need to proclaim it boldly and without hesitation. Amen. And as we go a little further now into the text, the next thing that, that we see if we're going to have a, a lasting message, if we're going to leave a lasting testimony behind, is we have to have a trustworthy message. That's why we read, uh, this God, His way is perfect. And the word of the Lord proves true. And notice here that when uh, David says that in these verses, he said our message is true. It's not from error. Our message is perfect. It's not from impure motives. Our message is honest. There's no hint of deceit. And that message, that good news is trustworthy. The good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And over 2,000 years later, the truth of Jesus Christ is is what we all still need. Because, you know, spiritually, uh, the world is no different than it was in David's day or in Luther's day. You know, in their day, the world was every bit as violent and corrupt and full of false and, and misleading worldviews, just like ours is. And all of us need to be continually called back to reliance on that old, old story of God's Word alone. That's our legacy from the Reformers. Because, you know, when Martin Luther rediscovered the gospel, he wasn't trying to start a new church. Uh, he simply wanted to reform the existing one, to draw it back to the pure gospel message of God's grace in Jesus Christ. And so from tiny little Wittenberg, Germany, off, way off the beaten path, a movement grew that hasn't stopped, uh, a confessing movement that seeks always to underscore the truth of God's word, the truth that we are freed from sin and guilt solely by the grace of God, which is in Jesus Christ. And brothers and sisters, we don't need anyone to stand between us and Christ. We don't need the church. You don't need a pastor or a priest. We can go to him directly. And so in, in his teaching and in his writing and in his personal life, Martin Luther pointed only to Christ. Luther preached nothing but Christ. And today we look only to Christ, who in the words of today's psalm, equips us with strength and makes our way blameless. And he does it by Christ's suffering and death on the cross. On that cross where he exhausted God's anger and turned away his wrath from my sins and from yours if you're in Christ. Brothers and sisters, we have just one message. And that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that message is absolutely trustworthy. And that leads to the third principle is if we are to change the world, if we would leave an eternal heritage behind, it takes a sacrificial heart. 
We read today, you have given me the shield of your salvation and your right hand supports me and your gentleness made me great. And you know, I like that verse because I think it really shows that ministry that changes the world is humbling. And ministry that changes the world costs everything. You know, if you want to make a difference, you've got to do more than just preach the gospel verbally. You've got to live it out in service to other people for the glory of God and not for your own self. Right? You, you've got to meet people where they are. That's why the author, uh, Fred Mauser, said of, of Luther uh, that he was really everything to everyone. He was a reformer and a theologian and a professor and a translator uh, and an author and lecturer. He, he was a, a hymn writer and a musician and a friend of students and a mentor of pastors uh, and a pastor to countless clergy and laity seeking always to be all things to all men who lived out his entire life in the service of Jesus Christ, including his latter years that he spent uh, in both illness and furious activity. Because you know, at the end of his life at, uh, in 1531, uh, though he had been suffering for months from exhaustion, Luther preached 180 sermons. Can you imagine that? He wrote 15 tracts. He reworked his translation of the Old Testament. He made it look like I just take naps every afternoon, right? I wouldn't even want to be in his league. He took a number of trips to fledgling churches until finally in 1546 he finally wore out but determined to glorify God all the way to the end of his life. Right before he died, he wrote to his supporters, whatever you do, please don't call yourselves Lutherans, but Christians. He said, what is Luther? The teaching is not mine. He said, how could it happen that I, a poor, stinking bag of worms that I am, end up having the children of Christ called by my miserable name? He, he said, let us get rid of all party names and call ourselves Christians after Christ, whose teachings we hold and by whose payment satisfaction has been made. And so he died the same way he lived, always pointing to Jesus Christ and always in everything that he did, pointing to the greatest words ever uttered by the greatest man that ever lived. Do you know from John 19 that he preached on frequently, we're told that on the cross, uh, Jesus knew that his mission was accomplished. And to fulfill the scriptures, Jesus said, I'm thirsty. A jar of sour wine was sitting nearby, so they soaked a sponge with it, put it on a stalk of hyssop and raised it to his lips. And when he had sipped the sour wine, he said, it's finished. It's finished. And you know, in his sermon on this passage, uh, Leonard Ravenhill said, In these three words, I see the consummation of all Old Testament truth and the germination of all New Testament history. And he said, I don't believe that ever in history was there anywhere at any time by any one three more words more pregnant with meaning than these three words given by one man at the end of his life. It is finished. And you know, if you... Uh, if we had the time together, if you have the time on your own to look this up, uh, the original Greek word here uh, that we get, it is finished from, it's three words for us in English, it's just one in Greek. Uh, it's the word tetelestai. That was a term often used in the Greco-Roman world of Jesus' day. Uh, for instance, an artist of that day might have used the word tetelestai when he had finished uh, a work of art to indicate he had put the final brushstroke on the painting. A servant might have used that word when he completed a task that his master had given him to do. And the servant would say, Master, to tell us, it's finished. 
A judge might have used that word when issuing a ruling that a sentence had been completed and discharged. The high priest in the temple might have said to Telestai when he found the perfect unblemished lamb for a sacrifice. And when it was offered up, he'd say to the person who brought that lamb, it's finished, your, your sins are gone. A, a merchant might have said to Telestai after stamping a, a bill paid in full. A soldier may have used it as a battle cry over a defeated enemy to let him know that his days are numbered. You know, when Jesus said that, he meant all of those things and more. And so when Jesus cried, is finished from the cross, it wasn't a cry of despair or defeat. When Jesus uttered those words, he was declaring, I have completed the picture of salvation. I've completed the work that my master sent me to do. I have met all the requirements of the law. I've completed the perfect sacrifice. I've paid the debt of sin in full. I have conquered the enemy. It is finished. It is finished. But praise God, that wasn't the end. It may have been finished, but it wasn't the end. Because don't forget, David said, The Lord lives, and blessed be my rock, and exalted be the God of my salvation. And brothers and sisters, today that message resounds in a living voice, through a living word, from a living Savior, through which God accomplishes and fulfills His gospel, with a message that makes the difference between heaven and hell for all of those who will listen to the preaching of the good news of Jesus Christ. You know, at the very near the end of his life in 1546, in what would actually be Luther's last words, his last sermon in Wittenberg where he started, Martin Luther said, True preachers must carefully and faithfully teach only God's word and must seek its honor and praise alone. And he said, In like manner, the hearers, the hearers of the preacher, we do not believe in our pastor, but in what he tells us. In what he tells us of a greater master whose name is Jesus Christ. And to him he directs us, and what his lips say we will, we will heed. And brothers and sisters, we stand here today in that long tradition. We stand in the tradition of the message of David and the prophets. We stand in the tradition of the gospel good news of the first century church, of the apostle Paul. We stand in the tradition of the preaching of the Reformation churches of Europe and of the Mayflower pilgrims whose faith we carry. Men and women of God who turned the world upside down and left a lasting testament for Jesus Christ. But you know that only happens one way. That happens through one proclamation. By God's grace alone. Through faith alone. In Christ alone. To the glory of God alone. And brothers and sisters, that will always be our final word. Amen? Let's pray together. God, our Father, we give you thanks for your forgiveness and for your faithfulness to your people in every age as you continually call us back to yourselves. Father, we ask you to fill us anew as we ask your spirit to hear and receive uh, all those things that we lift up to you in confession and in our covenant to you. Father, where we are corrupt, purify us. Where we are in error, direct us. Where we are in need, provide And when we stray, Lord, reform us as you have done these 501 years in this world and for 41 years in this church until your son returns in glory to make all things new because it's in his name we pray. Amen.